Good morning. This is Tommy Ray, and we're in episode 27 of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. Today, we're going to talk about water engineers and what they do. We're fortunate to have Courtney Brand, president of LRE Water, join us. Thanks, Tommy. Appreciate the opportunity on such a beautiful fall Friday here in uh, Denver, Colorado. And it truly is. We're, we're lucky to live here. LRE Water is the largest and best-known water engineering firm in Colorado. For us older guys, we remember that LRE stands for Leonard Rice Engineers. So, Courtney, when did the firm become LRE Water, and when did Leonard Rice transition out of the company? He was a good water engineer. Well, Lee Rice started uh, what was originally called Leonard Rice Consulting Water Engineers back in June 1970, so about 51 years ago. The name was later shortened to Leonard Rice Engineers, and then we rebranded to LRE Water in early 2020. You know, Lee was, uh, had a lot of foresight, and he transferred ownership and then transferred out of the business. We rebranded as LRE Water because the firm has changed significantly over the last five to six years. Ownership has expanded to nearly half of our staff now. We have, I think, 32 owners as we sit here right now. We have offices and staff in six states, and we do work pretty much throughout the western U.S. So although Lee wrote the book on water rights engineering, literally, and was well-known and respected in Colorado, he didn't have name recognition in some of the other states that we work in, like Texas, Minnesota, the Dakotas, California, etc., So since water is our singular focus, we felt it was imperative to get water into our name. Uh, But we also thought it was equally important to maintain and preserve Lee's legacy. So that's why we kept the LRE and made it LRE Water. Okay. According to your website, LRE Water provides consulting services in the area of river basins and water supply planning, water rights evaluations, well design and evaluation, groundwater planning, aquifer storage and recovery, water information technology, (laughs) environmental planning and regulatory compliance, and industrial water to clients in the western U.S. That's a mouthful. If okay with you, I'd like to discuss each of these areas. Can you tell us what is river basin and water supply planning? What does this mean? And who are the clients that would ask you to supply such service? Well, that is a mouthful, Tommy, so (laughs) appreciate the opportunity to maybe shed some insight on it. You know, most of our clients are water providers, water managers, or water users. You know, they include, for example, municipalities, water utilities, state and local governments, special districts, water authorities, ditch and reservoir companies, and also private sector companies like oil and gas and mining companies and law firms. Water supply planning involves a combination of water demand forecasting, water supply projections, and the identification analysis of strategies, projects, etc., to essentially bridge that projected gap that we see out there in time between demands and supplies. You know, the type of planning often involves modeling, you know, of different demand and supply scenarios, hydrologies, potentially climate change scenarios and, you know, other uncertainties that we see out there that we have to factor in. You know, we use a combination of deterministic and probabilistic modeling tools, you know, depend upon the needs and objectives of our clients. You know, I think you asked specifically about river basin modeling. 
know, that involves essentially development of a model. You know, it's typically a network flow model is, is what's typically used that simulates how a river system operates. You know, so it includes things like points of diversion, water rights, operating rules, priorities, you know, and some of the main water conveyance and storage infrastructure that exists in a basin. That model enables the user to make comparative analyses, you know, various historical and future projects and management strategies and policies in the basin. You know, some commonly used software platforms that we use and other uh, consultants like us is the State of Colorado State Model, Colorado State University's ModSim, and another common one is Riverware, which is developed um, at the University of Colorado Boulder. So you use a combination of these models. Do you often go back in and adjust the model yourself so that it's specific to what you might need those modeling projects are typically an iterative project. You know, we set up a, a baseline model that essentially does the best we can to simulate and represent uh, the river basin as it is right now. And then we can go in and vary lots of things. We can look at, you know, adding different diversion structures or uh, increasing storage buckets. Uh, we can do things like varying hydrology. We can look at synthetic hydrology. You know, we can vary the period of record, you know, because typically you want a fairly good, long representative period of record that includes, you know, a long series of both dry years, wet years, average years, et cetera. So you can see how things vary over time and with different hydrology. Of course, you have to have the data to put in there. And sometimes <laughs> that data doesn't exist. That's right. Back very far. That's right. We have to, I mean, it's always based on limited on the data that we have and, or the, the reconstruction of, you know, of historical hydrology. Courtney, this podcast series is focused mainly on water rights. I think I understand water rights evaluations, but can you explain what this entails? Is it simply a comparison to other rights on the same stream or does it go into detail on annual production of a given water right? You know, we perform really a wide variety of maybe what would be considered water rights evaluations for our clients. You know, one common type is quantification of transferable consumptive use. You know, that entails a historical consumptive use analysis or essentially looking at what the expected yield of a water right me might be both on a firm and average basis. So that's, that's one of the typical types of analyses we do. Another, you know, could be the opinion of the value of a water right, which is a function of its priority, yield, location, reusability, decreed beneficial uses, and other comparable sales. You know, because with water rights, they're a property right, but, you know, there's a priority system. And so that uh, priority and the location of it are critical to a, a water rights value. When we perform these types of evaluations, you know, we, we lean heavily and query the state's databases, you know, because we gather a lot of information on water rights, such as priorities, historical diversion records, call records, um, and decrees. You know, these valuations are typically fo focused on the same stream segment or district. However, they can extend into other districts or even water divisions, you know, especially if transbasin diversions are involved. Okay, before we leave that subject, uh, I assume that most of the information that you query in the state's database, all of that's computer-based, and so you it do is. that via the computer. That's right. Yeah. That's right. All of it is digital nowadays. Um, the state has, in this case, state of Colorado, has great uh, robust databases and good search, search functionality and stuff. So, yeah, it's all digital okay. for the most part. 
And what do you do to support a change of use application in water court? Tell us the process of water adjudication and what type of information your company gathers to support a change of use application. Surely you are asked to testify in court to support these change applications. I'd like to understand that process better. How long is a typical water court case? I know it takes two to three years to get on the docket, but how long is the actual hearing, and is the judge the only arbiter? Well, first, let me disclose <laughs> that I'm not a subject matter expert in water rights, you know, particularly water rights change cases. You know, I'm more of a generalist in water rights, and you know, I specialize in areas such as groundwater, geochemistry, ASR systems, etc. However, you know, my experience with change cases, they typically involve either a change of use or a change in the point of diversion. In change cases, you know, like pretty much all water right applications, you know, the standard is no injury to existing and senior water right holders. So, I mean, so much of the analysis and the process really is about demonstrating that there will be no injury to senior water right holders. So if you make a change or you file a new right, that's fine. But as long as you're, you're not going to impact senior water right holders or injure um, their property right. Yeah, and we have discussed that in previous episodes fairly extensively. So I think we, we understand that. Change cases involve, you know, an engineering analysis by, you know, consultants such as us. Preparation of a water right change case application, which typically is prepared by an attorney um, along with supporting of the engineer like us. And publishing in the water court resume. Okay. Um, what is a water court resume and, and who has access to it? Well, good question. It's not a list of your qualifications. <laughs> so in, in water rights and water court process, the resume is really, you know, because we have, um, there are seven water divisions or basins here in Colorado then plus the designated basin. So each publishes their own resume. And what that is, is when each you, basin has a water court. That's right. Exactly. Each one basin water has a water court, court for each basin. Exactly. And the purpose of the resume, essentially it's a ledger. So when you... Uh, one last quote before we go further. Uh, so each basin is based on the, the stream river. For instance, there's a South Platte River Basin, Colorado River Basin, Rio Grande, etc. That's right. You know, it's based on the drainage divides yeah. that separate South Platte from the Arkansas versus the Colorado, the Gunnison, the... Yeah. Rio Grande, et cetera. Exactly. And so there's water courts for each of those river basins and each has its own resume that it publishes. So when you, or let's say a, someone who is filing a water right application after maybe a couple of months, it gets published in what's called the resume. So what that is, it's a publication that it's, it's a public publication monthly, monthly, exactly. And you can essentially subscribe to receive that. And so it's a full ledger of all the water right applications within that division or that water court for that had been received. And typically people that will subscribe to the resume are water engineers, attorneys, cities, and other interested parties. Exactly. Um, anyone who owns water rights or, you know, is a stakeholder. And so 
we, you know, we as a water rights or water resource engineering firm, you know, we look at those resumes every single month. We even look at them for specific clients. And anytime when we're reading them, we're always scanning and trying to understand, hey, is this something that could impact our clients' water rights in this segment or this area? And if so, what might be that impact and would they want to become an, an opposer in the application? The resume will contain a listing of all applications that have been received during the previous month. That's right. And how long is the write-up in the resume? Is it a paragraph, two pages? It varies. You know, some are some are very brief and some are certainly more extensive. It's not pages, I would say, typically in the resume. But, you know, they vary based upon the sort of the size or sophistication of the application. And so you would review those, and if you found one of interest, you would contact yep, the water flag and say, let me well, look at the whole thing. Most likely we would contact our client, discuss it with them, and see if this is something they want to gather more information on, You know, and talk with their legal counsel if this is something that they want to essentially uh, get some more information on, poten- potentially become an, an opposer. And sometimes... When you're an opposer, you can be a friendly opposer. So essentially, it's really just, hey, you know, I'm just interested. I got water rights in this area. I just want to monitor the case, make sure I'm on the list of people that are getting information. I'm not really trying to stop it necessarily, but I at least want to monitor it. So and then you, sometimes you really oppose the case. It's like, hey, this looks like it really could potentially impact my water rights, and I want to um, you know, watch this carefully. So as a friendly objector, you might talk directly to the applicant and gather more information. We could. That's right. If our client wants us to engage okay, like that. Okay. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. We got a little bit off track there, but... Um, no worries. Okay. So I maybe going back to a little bit on the change case and the process, you know, I'd mentioned that we do an engineering analysis. You know, you prepare a water right application that's published in the resume. Our engineering analysis typically focuses on quantifying historical consumptive use and demonstrating that that change will not alter because really what it comes down to it, particularly, let's say if you've got, you have a change of use on ditch shares, let's say. And so it's, it's water uh, historically run through a ditch and then used for irrigated agriculture. What we look at is, you know, some of that water obviously is evaporated. Some of it seeps into the ground and returns as return flows, both through the conveyance system as well as in the field where the water is applied. So we look carefully at the historical timing, placement, and amount of return flows because downstream senior senior water right holders have depended upon those return flows back to the stream. So a lot of the engineering analysis is looking at the consumptive use portion that did not return to the stream and making sure that we're not altering that historical pattern of timing, placement, and amount of return flows. Courtney, this is so great to have an expert confirm some of the other things that we've stated in mm-hmm. earlier episodes. Sort of a follow-up question. Do your clients ever come to you and ask to find a water right to purchase to meet the client's need? And if so, how do you go about that? If it's not confidential, can you give specific examples? Yes. Clients do engage us to identify potential water rights to purchase at times. I can't give specific examples because these engagements are typically confidential in nature uh, because you know, an entity doesn't want you to know that they're out there searching for water rights because that can affect <laughs> uh, the price of things because it's always a, ne- a negotiation. You know, And honestly, 
since water rights are a property right, there are a lot of parallels to real estate, you know, and let's say searching for a house. So for example, first step, you know, we need to understand, identify how much water the client needs. So it's just like you, if you're going to go out and search for a house, you need to know how many bedrooms, bathrooms, garage, things like that, 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 that you need, you know, what the requirements are. And then what the preferred location of that water right is depend upon where they have existing infrastructure and other water assets, such as storage pipelines, et cetera. So just like in the real estate market, location, 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 (laughs) because it might be a great water, right? But if the client too dang far away, right. Too dang far away. You know, you're going to have to spend $200 million to construct a pipeline or something to access the water could be a stranded asset. So it's, it's not as valuable to them. You know, other significant factors are the priority of the water, right? Or it's seniority as well as the yield, because the priority and seniority of the water, right? dictate essentially what the yield or reliable yield of that water right and and certainly then what the value is you know we can perform a process where we inventory you know all the water rights in a region and filter it based on the criteria type priority yield decreed uses etc you know another source are brokers just like we have real estate agents there are brokers out there in the market just like real estate agents that actively uh, market water rights so that's another source Uh, to go to if you're looking for them. Do brokers often come to you and sit down with you and say, we have these water rights for sale? Right. Maybe they don't necessarily come to us and sit down with us, but they'll publish. Essentially, they'll send us some things. They've got another water right, and they know that it's something that could be of interest. You know, they'll send an email or, let's say, an an abstract about it that provides some information. Say, hey, are you interested? And, you know, provide some additional information. Right. We have covered a lot about the services and expertise of water rights engineers, and we've reached the normal time limit for an episode. We're going to stop episode 27 here. But Courtney and I continued our discussion. It was too informative just to walk away from. Therefore, we'll continue with Courtney in episode 28, where Courtney will educate us on well design and evaluation groundwater planning, SCADA, and what that means, environmental planning, and finally, talk about industrial water as separate and distinct from municipal water services. So for now, we'll end episode 27. As always, you can contact me at tommy at nowater.com. That's K-N-O-W hyphen water.com. I hope to hear from you. I also hope you will refer your friends to this podcast. It's a great way to learn about the complexities of water. Plus, you get to listen to our favorite mountain stream. See you next time.